Are you feeling alive this morning, church? Yeah? Do you know why? I mean, just kind of rub your fingers, you know? I mean, there are some people who have some um, nerve-ending damage that doesn't work. Um, Al can rub a couple, maybe, on one hand. Maybe he can rub those ones on his head or something. I don't know. But you, you rub them, and because, the, because you can feel everything at the end of your fingers, it tells us that your heart is doing what God created it to do, and that is to pump blood throughout your circulatory system so that every cell in your body is nourished with blood and is healthy. Isn't that amazing? That's why your doctors are telling you to take care of your heart because it does a pretty big job for your entire life. Now listen... I'm, I'm not a, a doctor. I, you know, I, I took a, an anatomy class when I was in high school. At one point, I learned every bone in the body, and I could name all the major muscle groups in the body. And those days are long gone, and I don't remember them. And so I'm not a doctor, but I can tell you this, that when your circulatory system shuts down, it's really simple. You die. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. That's why they, they want all that stuff to be working so that you don't die. So that's why the doctor says take care of your body, take care of your muscles, exercise, eat healthy, do all the right things. Now, some of you, I hate to tell you this, you just got plain old bad genes, and so you're going to have to work a little bit harder, and you might have to take some medication to help in the process. Okay, But take care of your blood because it goes to every cell of your body. The church also has a system that is vital to its health. And that is our circulatory system. It takes to the church, and that thing that it takes to the church isn't blood, but it is the life flow of the church, and that is love. That's love. I mean, if the church isn't operating... In love, the way that Christ has called us to operate in love, we're going to have a problem. We're going to have some things that fall apart. Our circulatory system is going to end up, you know, kind of having a problem. And what's going to happen is our spiritual arteries are going to get clogged. And the church is going to be in danger of spiritual coronary arrest. It's going to be a disaster. And it's all on this one simple precept that God has been laying out through Scripture, throughout the history of man, from the very beginning with Adam and Eve until the last breath of the last person that is on this earth, and that has to do with love. Because what happens with love within the confines of the church is what keeps the church healthy. Have you ever known a church to split? One side of the church gets mad at the other side of the church. And they say, you guys aren't doing it the way we want you to do. And they're going, you're doing it wrong. And so they split and they start two other, other groups. I will tell you right now, those are not healthy groups. You don't want to go to the first church of dysfunctional people. That's not a happy place. It's not a good place to be. And so... 
you know, what happens with this word love that we have, and it's in the Bible, it's all over the place. We use it all the time, but what happens is, is that it gets overused, and so it doesn't carry the same impact of expression that it should, particularly when we're talking about God's love in our lives. And it's really an odd word if you think about it. Because we use that word to express our love for our spouse, our wife, or our husband. We use that word to express our love to our, uh, our, our feelings to or about our children or grandchildren. We use that word to express it about our friends. We use that word to express how we feel about our favorite sports team. We use that word... If you're really reading God's word and you're understanding it, you use that word love to give an expression about your enemies, right? And you also use that word in conjunction with baked beans. (laughs) Who doesn't love a good baked bean, right? (laughs) And so what happens is, is now we've got this whole thing going on in our minds about what, what does love really mean and how do we d- make a, 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 a distinction between how we say love and use love in the way that God intended for us to do it? And if you remember when we were oh, about 100 years ago going through the book of 1 Corinthians, we came to this little chapter. It's called chapter 13, and it's often referred to as the what chapter? That's right, the love chapter. But when we were studying it, we came to the conclusion that there are four, um, four primary Greek words used for love. And I'm going to give you a refresher course on that over the next 30 seconds. So the first love word that we have for love in the Bible that we understand is philios. And that comes from like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And that's what philios means. It's brotherly love. And that's that love that we have for people that are our friends, that we have good acquaintance with, people that we we mingle with and hang out with. We then have a word called eros. And eros is a romantic love. And it is the love that when, when we think of eros in a biblical meaning, it's a love between a husband and a wife. It's a sexual love. And that's what eros is. And then we have sorge. And sorge is that love between family members, like between uh, a mom and dad, between children and family members, and it really expands itself into the whole place of even being with close friends, different than our filios love, because we have friends in our lives who are like closer than family members. And so when we talk about sorge, that's the love that we talk about in that relationship, and then we have this last one, and it is called agape love. And that agape love is that love that we understand God's love for us because it's unconditional. It is expressed to us in terms so that we really understand that no matter what happens, that love is expressed. It's never withdrawn. It doesn't matter what we do, how we act, how we respond. It doesn't matter if we reciprocate the love back. With God, he pours out his love to us, his agape love to us, unconditionally, and regardless of what happens in our life. There is only one place where you will find all four of those different expressions of love colliding together. And that's in a healthy marriage. In a healthy marriage, you have unconditional love. 
you have filios love, brother and sister kind of thing. Like, look, Lorinda was my sister in Jesus before she was my wife. I wanted her to be my wife before she was my sister, but it just doesn't work that way. So she was my sister in Jesus. She became my wife, Eros. We became family, Storge. And because of me being who I am, she has had to practice agape love a lot with me, unconditional love. And I am so thankful she has. But that's the only place you will find it. Now, when we take a look at what's going on here in this letter that John wrote, because we're in 1 John, the letter to the church that John wrote as an elderly pastor, remember? He's somewhere between 98 years old and 100 years old. He's the last of the, the 12 original apostles, disciples that Jesus had with him. The rest of them have all died a martyr's death, and John's the only one that's going to die of natural causes. And so now he's out of Jerusalem because Jerusalem in 70 A.D. fell. It was completely destroyed. And so now he's living in what we would call modern-day Turkey, and he's hanging around a little town called Ephesus. And so he's talking to the church because you can imagine a guy that's 89 or 100 years old, he's not really getting out a lot. And so instead of going down to the local church building where the church is gathering, he's sending them a letter, and he's going like, listen... You better understand this. I'm your spiritual father. And, I, and, I, and I've been teaching and preaching and I've been sharing Jesus with you. But there are some things that are creeping into the church that are not right. And so we're going to deal with all of this to, in this letter. And so he's, he's coming at them and talking to them in different ways. And like, like John said last week, we talked about the, the whole idea that John wanted us to get into our mind last week is that God wants us to obey, that there's this, this obedience that he's calling us to, and he would rather have us obey him than give him every red cent we have. Not that you shouldn't give a little of those red cents to Jesus. Somebody said, every time you preach, you try and sneak in giving in the offering somewhere. Well, there it is. I just snuck it in. It was pretty subtle. You probably didn't pick it up. <laughs> so, so we have John doing this. So now we're picking up John's letter at um, chapter 2, and we're starting with verses 7 and 8 today. And here's what it says. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. It is, its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. All right, so it sounds like this old guy, John, he's, you know, 89 and he can't remember what he wrote just five seconds ago because he first starts off by saying, I'm not writing you a new command, I'm writing you an old command. This is an old command I'm writing to you. And then all of a sudden he goes, wait a minute, hold on a second, I'm going to write you a new command. And so we're left with the uh, wondering, what are you writing to us? Is it an old one or is it a new one, John? What are you trying to say to us? Because it's a little bit confusing. Is it an old command or is it a new command? Well, I'm going to tell you, in this instance, it is both. Because the old command kind of comes back from the whole Old Testament thing. Because God has been laying out for people 
Ever since he put this love letter, the Bible, his words to us so that we understand him, he's been laying out the whole idea, the command of love right from the beginning when he started to have this thing written and put together. So he's got this thing going on. So it's coming from an old place, but it's also a new one because Jesus did something extraordinary with this old command that made it new and fresh. Matter of fact, in John 13, this is what Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. You see, it's an old command because it was given out of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, people saw it of more of a generalization of loving. It was that kind of a thing where we're supposed to love one another, but what, we did, what they did with it is they loved those who would love them back or were easy to love, like family members. You guys all have an Uncle Bob that's a little bit crazy. He's a little bit nut job, right? He's like, you love him. But you love him more when he's far, far away. Right? That's the uncle you love. You love him, but boy, you love him from a distance better. You still love him because you're your Uncle Bob, right? And who cares about that? And, and so it's that kind of idea that, that Israel had was that there was this limited consideration of loving those who are close to you and those who reciprocate love back to you. It, those are the people that God's calling us to love. But that's not what Jesus had in mind when he said this command that you're supposed to love one another. This new command that Jesus gave us It came with a new emphasis, a new example, which was himself, and a new experience in our lives. And we can actually love one another, and we can love our enemies, and we can love God, and all this love is expressed through word and deed, and it's all covered under that one word that we just talked about, agape love. Because it's unconditional. And that's what John's talking about here. That's what he wants us to get. The truth is it's a hard It is hard to love everyone. Even in the church, it's hard to love everyone. But we are commanded to do so by Jesus, who gave himself for us in the greatest act of love when he went to the cross. Greatest demonstration of love that we have ever uh, been able to understand and comprehend is when Jesus went to the cross for us in our place. Now, you know, there's this, this thing that really kind of drives me a little bit crazy. And you'll see it on television with an advertisement or in a commercial. Something's going to come on and it's going to go, here it is, it's a miracle, it's new and improved. <laughs> well, okay, I have a real problem with that because it's either new, which means it's never been around before and so they brought something new for you to buy and put in your closet that you're never going to use, or it's improved, meaning that the old one didn't quite cut the mustard, so we've improved the old one, and here's the improved model of this old thing that didn't work. But you can't have it both ways. You can't have new and improved. It's just impossible to have that. Unless you're Jesus. Because Jesus has a way of doing the impossible. What Jesus does is he takes whatever is old, he can take something that's old, he can improve it and make it new. And so that's the whole 
idea that John's got behind this old command versus new command that he's talking about. He wants to, us to get that. Matter of fact, the New Testament writers could use one of two words for new when they were talking about new. One meant something new in respect to time. In other words, it hasn't existed. I just invented it. Here it is. This is a new thing. Or it's also uh, the way John uses it here. It means with respect to quality. Now, John does both. Now, I, I want to I help you get a, a good picture of this. Because when we bought this building, it didn't look like this. <laughs> Believe me, if, you, if, you hadn't been, if you've never been in here before, I want you to imagine where you're sitting right now. Uh, you, you should probably close your eyes to imagine this so you can get the whole effect. <laughs> so you're sitting here. And the whole room smells like dirty diapers. <laughs> and then you open your eyes because it's kind of nauseating. And you look up and on the ceiling, there are white fluffy clouds on a bright blue ceiling. And then on the walls, there are trees with leaves glued into them. And it's all kind of bright blue, bright Pink, bright yellow, bright orange, and bright, bright green. And it hurts your eyeballs just to look at it. And so what happened is we bought the building. This is still the same building on the outside. But it's being repurposed on the inside. What was originally designed to take care of kids while the parents went to work is now designed for us to be involved in God's business. Do you know what God's business is? God's business is people. So now, if we're following the Father's business, then we're in the people business. So if we're in the people business, uh, and it's God's business, here's our business vision. And it's that we are a group of people who are intentionally connecting people with Jesus. That's our vision as, a, as this group right here. That's our vision, okay? That's what, we're gonna, that's what we're out to do. And so when people come into this building, we're going to be intentional about connecting them with Jesus. We don't care whether they're rich or poor. We don't care whether they are young or old. We don't care whether they're a man or a woman. We don't care if you're a first-timer or a long-termer. We don't care if you have coconuts or don't have coconuts. <laughs> Everybody comes in here, we want to connect you with Jesus. Because we know that when you encounter Jesus and you connect with people, that God is going to do something new. He is going to take what is old and has lost its purpose, and He is going to repurpose it with a vision in mind, with a purpose in mind, and with a goal in mind. And you all are a part of that vision, that purpose. That's what we're about. That's what we want to do. Jesus is taking what we have here. He is taking the old run-down stuff, the stuff that just seems to be worn out and has no more life to it. I want you to look around because when you look in here, you see all this old barnwood everywhere. I mean, 
We're talking about snow fences and two farms that we've taken this wood off of. And you know what those farms were? They were abandoned. They were given up on. There was nothing left out there. No one lived there. No one was doing anything with anything. All the stuff was rotting and it was falling apart and it was going to end up in the ground and burned up. And yet God gave us a vision to go out and to gather all this old, rotten, stinking barn wood and to repurpose it for this building. I don't know whether you get the picture, so sometimes, you know, I don't want to cross the T and dot the I for you on everything, but on this one, I'm going to do that. Here's how I'm going to cross the T and dot the I. You're the old stinking barn wood, and God is repurposing your life. He has something better for you. Just imagine, this stuff was just sitting out, out in, the, in the cow poo. I'm telling you the truth. Some of this was corral wood, you know. Sorry, Shane, but your, that post is cow poo post. Right there. Okay? And we're hugging it. And we're rubbing up against it. And we're looking at it. We're, and we made a coffee bar out of it. You notice we made it, covered it up real well so it doesn't have the stinky part anymore. It's got that shine to the sheen that looks really good, okay? But this is all being repurposed. And so every time that we walk into this building, I want you to understand. I don't want you to have any mistake about it. God is revitalizing something old. He is taking the stuff that has, has not make, made any freshness about it, and he's making it fresh and alive again. And aren't you thankful that he is? That's your life. God has so much more for you than what you can imagine. So much more to make your life fresh and vital. He wants to take the lostness and the, the, lively, the lost things of your life, he wants to bring liveliness back to it. He wants to give, give you a tenacity for the kingdom of God. He wants to bring us to a new place of being who God designed us to be. And you know how we know that's going to happen? Because Jesus said so. I should just stop right there. You should say amen. We should go home. Good luck with that. Oh, no, I got you for a little longer. But here's how we really know. Know that when Jesus breathes new life into old wineskins, it becomes something new in terms of quality and authority. Because remember I just quoted from John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. You know this, And that's thir- verse 34. You know what it says in verse 35? <laughs> this is the catcher. This is where we get excited because we're going, yeah, this is us. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. The lifeblood, the love. Everybody will know. Everybody will know. Your neighbors are going to know. Your kids' teachers are going to know. Your doctors are going to know. Is there anybody who's not everybody? Is there... Somebody who's an everybody that's a nobody? No. Because we're all everybody. When the Bible says everybody, there is no ex- uh, you know, exclusion to that. It includes everybody will know that you are Jesus' disciple by the love you have one for another. So, hey, if they don't know, 
It's because you're not loving one another the way Jesus called you to love one another. I want you to notice what Jesus didn't say when he says, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. He didn't say, everybody will know you're my disciples by your doctrinal orthodoxy. In other words, your theological knowledge. He said, it's by your love that other people will know who you are and who you belong to. And this is how Jesus takes something that has lost its purpose and repurposed it and bringing new meaning to an old idea. We talk about love and it's just a word we use and we just throw it out there. And I think sometimes we just throw it out there really quite carelessly and we don't really use it the way that God intended for us to use it. And when we say to somebody, you know what, I love you, it's kind of like saying, hey, I'll see you later. But when God calls us to love one another, I'm telling you, like, um, all right, so I freak some guys out a lot. I'm not kidding you because I'm on this committee for the Rocky Mountain District, and it's called Dexcom. And they're all pastors, and they're from western Montana to, to eastern Montana, from Idaho and Wyoming. And when I get together with those guys, and these are some guys that are, they think they're the, the man's man, I hug them, and then I give them a kiss on the neck. And it freaks them out. <laughs> I don't get it. And they go, will you stop doing that? And I said, no, because the Bible said to greet one another with a holy kiss. And if you go to another country, they're going to kiss you. We just don't do it. And so listen, if you're not getting prayed for today, if you don't come up to the front for getting prayer, come see me, I'll give you a kiss, and we'll send you on your way. That's, That's what it means when we say we love each other. I have daughters and sons in this church that are not my flesh and blood, but I love them like they're my own. I have men and women who I stand shoulder to shoulder with that are closer than my own brothers and sister. Because this is the family of God, and this is where we love each other deeply. And so this idea of being able to love someone with no conditions attached to it is really a difficult concept for us to get because in this church we chafe one another in Proverbs it says as one man sharpened so iron sharpens another as one man sharpens another so iron sharpens iron the whole idea is we rub on each other. We bring out the best in each other. We make each other sharp. We help each other understand. And, and that's what we want to have going on. But here's the problem is that we get lost in this whole idea. But I tell you what, the church over the centuries has done a marvelous job of helping us to understand unconditional love because we've worked it right into this whole thing of what we call marriage. And by the way, in this church, when we talk about marriage, we're talking about one woman married to one man for until death separates them, okay? That's our definition of marriage. 
And so when we talk about that, and this young couple, what happens is you get this young couple in the church, and they're all excited because they started dating, and the church has been watching them, and they start holding hands, and then they start doing all this other stuff. And and the next thing you know, they say they're in love, and it's really kind of gushy. And a lot of the ladies in church are going, oh, it's so cute. Aren't they just a cute little couple? And most of us guys are rather disgusted by it because it just makes you throw up in your mouth sometimes. Just being honest. Okay? It just happens. So, so anyway, what happens is we, it is what it is. And so the next thing you know, they come to the pastor and they go, hey, we want to get married because we're so in love with each other. And we go like, all right. And so here's the deal. You have to come in. You have to go through pre-marriage counseling. And you've got to meet with one of the two pastors uh, from anywhere from, from four to six weeks. And, you know, we're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff. And, and then we go through the whole thing. And then the big day comes when they stand in front of each other and they're looking at each other starry-eyed, you know, and they're just, oh, this is just the greatest thing ever. And, and then they, they, you know, they're, they're pretty nervous at that point. So sometimes they don't even remember what they said. <coughs> Honest. But in this whole thing, we've incorporated unconditional love into their covenant between each other and before God and the witnesses. And it comes at that point. How many, have, how many of you have been to a wedding in the last two years? Put your hand up. Put your hand up, not like this. All right, so a lot of you have been. So here are some of the words that you have heard in the wedding if it was done in a church by a pastor who loves Jesus. Okay? At one point, they're going to say that um, in their covenant to each other, it is for better for worse, for richer for poorer, in sickness and in health. For better, for worse. I think the way that it should be rewritten these days is it's for better, for better, for rich, for richer, in health and healthier. Because if you add those other sides to that, it talks about an unconditional love that you have for that person. It does for better, for worse. That means when your spouse has Alzheimer's, dementia, they don't even know who you are anymore. You still love them. It means when they're sick and in the hospital and racking up enormous hospital bills that you're wondering, how are we ever going to pay for this? You still love them. It means that when, when all of a sudden we've lost everything because of some bad decisions that we don't jump out of the boat and go find a new boat. We stay in the boat even though it's sinking. We both get a bucket and we start bailing. That's what marriage is all about. That's unconditional love. That's the love that God shows to us. That's the love that we have for each other. And, and it's this agape love. The problem is, is that people, a lot of times today, don't take their marriage vows seriously. Honest to goodness. If people, more people in the church took their marriage vows as serious as God took it, we wouldn't have people lining up to see the pastor in his office to talk about their marriage problems because they would be in, in this conditional love segment and they would go, I, I signed up for this and I'm going to love them no matter what. We wouldn't have divorce in the church. 
But the problem is, is that our covenant before God doesn't mean anything to us. If you were to love God the way you're supposed to, then you would love your spouse the way you're supposed to, and you would love your neighbor the way you're supposed to. If you love God the way you're supposed to, and you love your spouse the way you're supposed to, you wouldn't treat them like they are worthless. You wouldn't treat your neighbor and talk badly about your neighbor. You would love them the way God's calling to you to. And here's the point that Jesus and John are making about the old covenant that has a new purpose. When we live in the truth of a new covenant, we will dispel the darkness of this world because the true light of Jesus is already shining in all of our relationships and starting with those that are closest to us. And when Christ's light is shining in a relationship, it dispels all the darkness. And guess what comes to the top? Guess what gets revealed? All the crap of your life. And then you get to live it out. And you get to say, thank God that when I asked him to forgive me, his unconditional love forgives me and purifies me from all unrighteousness. God will never pull up your sin and hold it against you ever again. It's a promise of Romans 8.1. Because you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. So if God's not going to hold that sin over your head, what makes you think that you're bigger, better, greater, and no more than God, that you can hold the sin of your spouse over their head? That you can hold the sin of a Christ follower over their head? What makes us think that we have the ability to do something that God said he would never do? We don't. We can't do it. This agape love that both Jesus and John are teaching, it's, it's not about a syrupy, sweet emotionalism. It is a disposition of the mind and the will that loves unconditionally. It is easy to love those who love us, but John is talking about loving all people, whether they reciprocate the love or not. So it, as you take a look at that, verses 7 and 8, It says, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, that's Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Here again, in in verse 8, Jesus is represented as true light, and this is a carryover from John's gospel, where he introduces Jesus. If you go back to Matthew, and you look at the beginning of Matthew, you get the genealogy and the understanding and the birth of Jesus. If you go to Luke, and and you look at Luke, Luke comes at it from a different point of vantage, and he he gives you the, the full birth of Jesus, the travel to Bethlehem, all of that, you know, the whole nine yards, the Christmas story we all love. You go to Mark, he was sleeping during that portion of class, And so he wrote nothing. You go to John, and John says, let me introduce Jesus to you. And so here's what he says in John 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he says in verse 9 of that same chapter, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That light is Jesus. 
See, Jesus is a multifunctional person and God. Because we know Jesus to be the true light. We know that he's light dispels darkness. We also know that he's the living water. That he is the bread of life. We know all these things about Jesus. And that's who he is to us. And John's telling us. And Jesus is the true light. And he's already shining. And he's telling us that when Jesus entered in the world. He became the light of the world. Spiritual darkness has been penetrated by Jesus. The light of the world. Now here's the Here's the issue. It's an issue John's dealing with that we still have to deal with. Get this. There is no reason for people to look for, for, uh, for or to expect any new revelation of light and truth because the true light has already revealed everything we need to know about God and about himself, and that's Jesus. Don't go looking somewhere else. Don't go to another well to try to find fresh water, to find living water, because I'll tell you what you find at that other well. Stagnant, stinky water, and it's going to cave in on itself. I'm almost done. Almost. We only have three more verses to get through. When we love as God has designed us to love and as is expressed here by John, we'll be walking in the light as Jesus in the light, not just because we have Jesus in us, but because we are now looking at our example, the author and perfecter of our faith. John 9 through 11. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates his brother or sister in the, is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I'm going to move through this quickly, so hang on, strap your seatbelt on, get ready, because we might hit something the airbag might go off. All right. Now... John makes the point that if we claim to be in the light but we hate other Christ followers, we are just deceiving ourselves. Notice that the, the, the tense of the word hates is present tense and suggests habitual action. In other words, you don't just start hating a fellow Christ follower. It's something that you've been doing for a while. It started as something small and built into something big. And now you hate another Christ follower. And, and you have this hatred that is, is, is making you somehow feel like it's some kind of a sick comfort or the poison of hatred. Because John's saying you cannot hate and love in your heart at the same time. So if there is another Christ follower with whom you have animosity and you hate that other person, I am going to tell you, and this is what John says, the love of Jesus is not in your heart. And that's a pretty serious thing because if it's not in our heart, then we have to start wondering if we are actually saved at all. And here's the reality. The Bible understands that we live in the, the real world and, and not one where we pretend. Listen, the Bible's not okay with you coming to church and pretending that everything's okay. So if you come to church pretending everything's okay, my marriage is just fine. Hey, honey, let's put on the happy marriage face. 
And you walk in the door and you pretend that your marriage is fine. You pretend that your job is going great. You pretend that your business is thriving. You, you come in and you have all these pretenses about you. And what the Bible is telling us and what Jesus demonstrated to us and the reason why he chose the 12 guys he chose is because he wants us to be real and authentic about who we are and what's going on in our lives because nothing will change as long as we pretend. And so when, when John says here, if you hate your brother or sister, you're still in darkness, it's because we're pretending to love them when we really hate them. And when we as Christ followers become angry with a brother or sister, this is where it starts. And if we're not careful, that anger over time can turn into resentment that left unchecked can give birth to hatred. And it's a poison of our entire life with Jesus. And you know where it really begins? Is when someone has offended us and we're offended by what they've done and what we're doing is we're waiting for them to come and make an apology to us and we never hear the apology to it, given to us and therefore now we're angry at them for what they did. They may not even know that they did it because you didn't tell them. You're expecting them to be clairvoyant and they can't be. And, and so now you've got this whole ang- this thing because you're angry. They haven't confessed their sin. You're holding it against them and you're not going to give forgiveness to them. And so now what you start to do is you start to take the poison of an unforgiving heart that's filled with resentment and bitterness and you start to drink that poison of unforgiveness. It's like rat poison. And you take that poison and you drink it with the hopes that while you're drinking this unforgiveness, this rat poison, you're going to kill the other person. And they don't even know that you're drinking the rat poison and they don't even care. You know why they don't know? Because you've never said anything to them. That's why Matthew 18 is such an important uh, precedent for our lives because it says that if you, if you have something against another brother, if there's a sin problem between you and someone else, go by yourself to that person and say, hey, look, we've got a problem here in our relationship. We're cutting the blood flow, the love flow in the church right now. This is going to affect the whole church, and and it's, it's hurting our vitality in the church. We need to fix this relationship right now. And if the other person goes, you go, okay, that's fine. Try it again. And try it again, and try it again. And nothing happens. And then Matthew 18 says, go get two other people to come with you. Subjective people. Not people that you've been sitting with down at the Lander bar, I mean Lander coffee shop. <laughs> and you've been telling them what a dirty rat this person is in the church, and how you can't stand their guts, and this is the wrong they did. And now you've poisoned their attitude, and those are the two people you're going to go with you to talk to this person? No, you don't do that. You get two people who don't know anything that's going on so that they can be a witness about what's happening, so that they can give godly insight into the problem. And you sit down, and you start to express it, and then the four of you are there, and you're talking, and you're trying to work things out, And if it still doesn't work out, Jesus said in Matthew 18, then you tell it to the church. And in this church, when we talk about telling it to the church, what we mean is you bring it to the elders. The elders will have a discussion. We will bring that person in. We will have a conversation with them. And if they are unwilling to repent and change and do what God's calling them to do, 
We are going to ask them, and I've only had to do this three times in 27 years of being a pastor, three times, but we will ask them not to come until they are ready to repent and reconcile. But that's where you go when you get into a position of hating someone else. Even in this Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus, Jesus equates killing with hating your brother. And, and I've heard that way too much. And here's what happens. There's two dangerous places that we live in when we hate somebody else. First of all, physically. When a person spends a lifetime of hating someone, the damage it does to the physical body is unbelievable and undeniable. Now listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what I am saying. I believe that there are some people who live with chronic chronic pain because they have an unforgiving heart and they hate other Christ followers. Hear what I just said. I'm not saying everybody that has chronic pain is living that way. And I don't know who it is, but I do know what hatred and unforgiveness does in a person's body. It makes a wreck of it. And so not everybody who has cancer, not everybody who has arthritis, not everybody who has a toothache, that'd be me this morning, has has hatred and unforgiveness in their heart. But sometimes, sometimes it has become such an insidious thing in their life that physically they get sick because they've been dwelling on it for so long. And God wants to bring freedom and healing from all that stuff. The the other problem with these people that that do that, if they don't have chronic pain, they just become the biggest joy suckers in your life. I mean, that's the bottom line, right? You don't want to be around them because all they can do is go, you know what, that dirty, rotten, no good for nothing, son of a Baptist, I can't believe he did that to me. <laughs> right? And that's what they do. And they just start sucking all the joy out of your life. And you walk away like one of those lemons that's been sitting in the refrigerator for about six months. You know, there's nothing left. It's just a hard, ugly thing. The second issue of hating another Christ follower is that person is still living in darkness. The person who hates, the Bible says, is living in darkness. The moral and spiritual atmosphere in that life is darkness. And there should be a red flag on consistent hatred for other people. Because that may be the evidence of an unregenerated heart. Now I can hear some of you saying, hey, I don't hate anybody in this church. I don't hate anybody. There's a bunch of people I just don't like, though. I just don't like them. And I'm going to say, all right, there's two categories when it comes to disliking people. You can dislike them for a reason. There's a reason why you dislike them. And then you have people, the second is, you can dislike, um, dislike them for no reason. Let me go to the first one. There are a lot of reasons why we may dislike others. They talk too much. They don't talk enough. They're too critical. They're know-it-alls. They have no personality. They have too much personality. They're boring. They have really bad breath. (laughs) And then there's thousands of other reasons that you can just add to the list. But on the other hand, sometimes we just don't like someone for no particular reason. Why don't you like them? I don't know. I just don't like them. I just don't like them. Did they do something? No. Do they walk funny? No. I just don't like them. Are they a Bears fan? No. I just don't like them. So this guy named William Barclay, who's written a lot of commentaries, a really brilliant mind, he said this about this passage. Our brother cannot be disregarded. He is a part of the landscape. The question is, 
how are we to regard him? We may regard him as negligible, with contempt, as an enemy, or as a brother. And if we regard him as a brother, his needs are our needs. His interests are our interests. He must be loved. Some days, I'm just telling you. That's it right there. So John says two things about the one who loves. First, he lives in the light. He is, he is not only enlightened by the gospel, but it also reveals his identity and faithfulness to Jesus, but he also obeys the commands to Jesus and loves others and thus lives continually in the light. Second, in such a person, there is no cause for stumbling. And, and what that means is, is that as you live your life in the light, following Jesus, living like Jesus wants you to, loving other people, you are not a stumbling block for other people. What you become is a stepping stone for other people. You become a stepping stone so that they can step on you. They see you. They step on you to draw closer to Jesus. It's not like you're a doormat. You become helpful. You become something to somebody so that when they're walking along and they're looking at Jesus, you will be one of two things to those people who are trying to draw near to God. You are either going to be a stumbling block to them or you're going to be a stepping stone for them. And it all comes back to how you love. Here's the hard reality. When people hate other people, it zaps purpose, direction, in life so much that you can't know God's direction and purpose for your life. It's like turning the lights out on your life and stumbling around in the dark and you just hate more and you go nowhere and you can't figure out what the deal is. Hatred takes you out of God's will. When you are out of God's will, you are no longer walking in love or obedience. So here it is. Boil it down. I could have said this at the beginning, said amen. We could have gone home. We are never more like Jesus than when we love like Jesus loved. Let me say that again. We are never more like Jesus than when we love like Jesus loved. Amen? All right. Our, our Father, we just love you so much because of what Jesus has done for us. And... There's so much in this for us to understand and for us to unpack and for us to live by. But the bottom line is you're calling us to love one another. That's what you want us to do. You want us to have such a contagious love for each other that the people outside the four walls of this church, people who, who don't know Jesus but know us, will wonder why we love uh, one another so much. And what it does is it'll point them to the reality of who you are, Jesus, in our life. And so we thank you for giving us that indicator in our life for other people to see. We pray simply tonight, or this morning, God, that as we love you, and you love us, and we love each other, that we would have an outpouring of the manifest presence of Jesus in our community and we would see people 
getting their lives right with you, coming as John says in, in the first, in, in verse 9 of this letter, that if they confess their sins, they'll be, uh, you are faithful and just to forgive them of all their sin and purify them from all unrighteousness. What a marvelous promise that is for all of us. Do your work in our hearts, we pray, Jesus. Amen.